Yeah, that was Good evening, everyone. Come on in. There's, there's still some seats in the front here if you want to come down. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. My name is Deepu Gauda, I'm the host tonight of Narrative Medicine Rounds. We have our rounds uh, every the first Wednesday of every month, so we look forward to seeing you guys uh, next month as well. Uh, my role at the medical school is I'm an internist. I practice hospital medicine, uh, and uh, I also have roles at the medical school in the educational setting. I run a course called Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials, and I see some of my students here in the audience. It's the course where we teach students how to do the history at the bedside and how to do the physical exam. Um, these are foundational skills that put us in close approximation to patients and their families and to really elicit their stories of illness and understand what they're going through. Um, this is a very special evening tonight because we're going to be delving deeply into that topic of how do we understand what's happening with our patients and their families. Um, we are very fortunate to have our two guests tonight and uh, two guests that are able to be here at the same time. Uh, they're both intimately involved in uh, creating this Oscar-nominated short documentary film called Extremis that we will screen. It's a 24-minute a, a film, uh, so we'll be able to screen the film in its entirety here. So what I'd like to do is introduce our speakers and show you the film and then go directly into a conversation uh, with, with the speakers. So our first uh, guest is Shoshana Ungerleiter. She's an internist practicing hospital medicine in San Francisco. She's received her medical degree from Oregon Health Sciences University and then went on to train at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, where she is now a teaching faculty. And she also, for me, represents someone who really was able to find her own way in bringing about healing. What I mean by that is we think about training in a particular field like nursing or medicine or social work, and we conceptualize these kind of classic you know, uh, career trajectories. And what Shoshana has shown us is that she's found her own unique way to bring about healing in people and populations, and also finding ways to change structures of education and training and practice in the process. She's on the board of trustees for the hospital where she works, and she's been committed to helping patients and families uh, at all stages of life deal with severe illness and how they make decisions around those moments. She's the founder of the Ungerleiter Palliative Care Educational Fund, which supports innovative programs that furthers palliative care education across the educational continuum. So being a physician gives her some insight into what's going on, but she's really moving outside of the classic and traditional notions of what it means to be a physician um, and what it means to be a healer. And on the website for the foundation, she writes, if I have helped someone live fullest to the very end, I have practiced the best medicine. So it really asks us to expand the notion of what it means to practice medicine. She has served as a major funder of Extremis, the documentary film on end-of-life care and decision-making that we're about to watch. Our second guest this evening is Dr. Jessica Zitter, who practices ICU medicine or critical care medicine, as well as palliative care at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. 
It also happens to be the site of the documentary film The Waiting Room, if you've, if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, that's another documentary that is definitely worth seeing. Highland Hospital is a county hospital in Alameda County. Uh, Dr. Zitter is the physician that is featured in the film that you're about to see. She's also the author of a recently published book dealing with the same topics of end-of-life decision-making and care titled Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Her essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and, the, and JAMA, and other sources. In her New York Times article about grappling with end-of-life decisions, she writes, but it's not that simple for an ICU doctor. Our training urges us on, even when it is clear our patient is dying, and especially if there's no family to consent to putting the brakes on. And she goes on to write, but I felt another pull too from another part of my medical training, palliative care. This specialty had taught me an approach to care of suffering and dying patients that differed from the one I'd learned in my ICU training. Over the years, I'd come to see that interventions I performed in the name of life-saving often didn't help my patients, but rather compounded their distress, sometimes without significant benefit. Kirkus, which reviewed her book earlier this year, writes, Zitter's impassioned advocacy for increased palliative awareness in modern medical establishments is both immediate and heartfelt. She notes that both doctors and patients have a tendency to ignore death, and this often, quote, fuels a tremendous amount of suffering. Clarity and compassion unite in this touching and convincing new conversation on comfortable, patient-centered, end-of-life care. So with that, we'll transition to the film. Um, and uh, Slate writes about extremis. This documentary is a view into the daily dilemmas that occur as, in an ICU as doctors, patients, and families face the inevitability of death, though they realize it at different times. It's a fascinating conversation to watch as any viewers will inevitably realize that they'll face the same conversations themselves at some point. Nothing can truly prepare anyone for that, but this documentary is a good place to start the conversation. So we'll screen the film and we'll go directly uh, to a conversation with our guests. You want it out. What if you die if I take it out? Okay. 
for that one. Was that the family you see here in the park? You woke up in the morning and said, Mom, I'm taking you to the hospital. She didn't want me to call the ambulance. She that $2,000, you know, so she kind of was like, you so know, she finally said, I'm going. Not in the best financial situation, you know, you know. Yes, so then she jumps in my husband's car, we're driving off, and she said, guys, hurry up, and then she went, and then we had to pull her out the car and start to do the resuscitation with the CPR. That must have been terrifying. I was beyond terrifying. I must say, that's impressive, and your mom's lucky. And now where are we? Tell me what you understand. They want big responses. I'm checking for any response that I can get. Whenever I first came in here, I could touch her hand, I could do anything. She wasn't going to open her eyes. Okay, yeah. now I come in, I touch her hand, her eyes went wide open. Selena, can you squeeze my hand? Squeeze my hand. Squeeze my hand, honey. Okay. Would I like to see her really looking at me and kind of following commands? Okay. Yes, I would. Um, am I concerned a little bit still that maybe we won't get a whole lot more? I am. To me, the whole situation is miraculous in and of itself, so yeah. I'm always looking for another miracle. You know, this is clearly a loving daughter who will do anything for her mother, and she's really wrestling and struggling, and sometimes it's just too much for one person to make a decision like this. I think you're very sensitive to uncles, and I think she's, she's lucky. That's all she has, though, brother. Oh, she's always yeah, happy. I know, I know. So it's really, really, really difficult. Is there any definitive test that will tell you that absolutely, mm-hmm. positively, there is no way for her to recover mm-hmm. under any circumstance? She won't wake up from this in, in a meaningful way. And I don't know if that's been clearly stated to you, if you've heard that. Every day, people with very poor neurologic prognosis are attached permanently to machines. And unfortunately, it's very hard emotionally for us physicians when we feel that we're taking a body and we're keeping it alive and it's not really the person. But God has proven to me miracles are miracles and we have to be informed. If I had to make a decision for myself, then take me off and if I breathe on my own, then that's fine, that's God's will. If I don't breathe on my own, fine, then that's God's will. You know, because I believe in prayer, but I believe in nature taking its course too. It's tough. It's like, I would hate not to be trained. But God says, I just want to But it's too much for me. I want to try everything I can. I just want to try whatever that makes a difference. Police. 
they're torturing a patient in the ICU. My heart dropped into my stomach and I realized, oh my gosh, she's right. What I'm doing right now is not gonna help her. It's not gonna get rid of this disease that's killing her. And I don't wanna do that anymore. Living homeless, debilitating, failure he's been institutionalized for a long time now. We're just keeping a close eye on you to make sure you're feeling all right. Do you have any family members or anybody that is part of your family? Oh, I'm sorry? Well, we'll help take care of you then. If we're going to treat, the treatment isn't treat the hospital. So if you guys don't agree with that, and if you say, tell me, no, this guy would want everything done, you want to live, even if he was vegetative, on a ventilator for his life, if you need to, then the treatment isn't within the treatment. I don't feel that he is able to make those decisions, and I don't feel that we have to live in living for him. We don't really know his prognosis. We don't know if he ever had capacity for decision-making. So the ethics of this are murky. Do you like to make your own medical decisions, or do you like the doctors to make the decisions for you? to a breathing machine in what's called a ventilator facility. 
The other approach is to say, well, we're going to take her off the breathing machine and hope that she lives for a long period of time. It probably wouldn't be, I'm going to guess, more than a day or two. Maybe, you know, I've been surprised. Sometimes it's longer. And really focus on her comfort and her calmness and her being with her family and let her pass naturally. Knowing at some point you gotta get to that reality, you know, she always cut it off, so now it's here. I can't tell if she is alert enough to have, to have this conversation. It's, it, when I talked to her this morning a little bit, I didn't feel that she was really understanding. What, what, and, and that's, at that point, if that's the way it is, and if things don't, if she doesn't perk up and really become herself, that's when surrogate people have to step in and make those choices. I want to make sure that she knows that, that we've explored all the options. I told her I'd never let the doctor stop. Mm -hmm. I would never let him stop. But when I told him to stop, she had to trust me. She'll wake up 
my mom already made her decision. And that's how come her heart is still beating. She can go at any time, but she knows to stay here because she loves me. If I were to go that last word, there would be no me.
So if we could have Dr. Ankerleiter and Dr. Zitter come up. all come together? Well, first, I want to just say that um, I don't know if Rita Sharon is here, but is she? Oh, hello. I, when I first heard about your program, I wanted to be, desperately be part of it, and I emailed you a long time ago. I don't know if you remember, but so good to be here, and I'm so honored. Thank you. The narrative story, the, sort of the origin story, actually, about this, this movie is, is that I saw this other movie which you alluded to called The Waiting Room which was filmed in our hospital as well. Um, it's a beautiful movie which I recommend that everybody see and it's about 24 hours in the waiting room at our hospital and um, just gorgeous movie and I saw it in 2012 and I had already been writing uh, a lot but nothing had really gotten published um, and uh, I saw this movie and I thought oh my goodness you know this is how to get the message out. The, uh, Maybe a picture is worth a thousand words, but a movie is worth a thousand pictures. And um, I went after the filmmaker from that movie, and I just kept begging him, please come. His wife worked with me in the ICU. She's a speech therapist there. And I would text him for the next year, you know, oh, I just had this interesting conversation, and oh, you would have found this so compelling. And finally he got, I think, tired of me doing that. <laughs> and he said, I have a friend who's in between projects, and um, let me introduce you to him. And so I was introduced to Dan Krause. And um, I tried to, you know, we met in a cafe in Oakland, very hip, and these two hip directors, and I was definitely not very hip. And I, <laughs> I sat there trying to convince Dan Krause uh, about why he should come into the ICU. And he's a young guy with young kids, and he thought, oh, you know, it sounds kind of depressing. I said, no, it's actually, you know, there's really great stories in the ICU, and actually it's so many wonderful stories, so many inspiring stories. And, I said, just come and spend a few minutes with me. And so he actually agreed to come. So he came with me one afternoon to the ICU, and about 20 minutes into it, I, he, he ran, he literally said, I can't do this, and he ran out. And he just, I didn't hear from him for about a month, and then he emailed me back and said, you know what, I am ready to confront my demons about this topic, I've been thinking about it, and I need to come back. And so he came back and made the movie. 
And was it challenging to get buy-in from the hospital, the administration? It was, um, it was very challenging, actually. And it was probably, I'd say, one of the most stressful things I've ever done because there were many, many reasons that it's hard to make a film. There are many reasons it's hard to make a film in the hospital. And it's, uh, there are many, many more reasons why it's hard to make a film in an ICU. Uh, the ICU is a place where people want to look, you know, doctors, we are supposed to be, we're supposed to know everything. And um, when you're in an ICU, it's really scary. And it's hard to feel like you know everything. And I think most of my colleagues did not feel comfortable. So I thought this was going to be a big group thing. We were all going to do it. And only one colleague agreed to do it, which was Monica, my friend Monica, who's in the movie. And many of the nurses didn't want to be in it. Um, so there was a lot of discomfort. There was a lot of a sense that, you know, were we taking advantage of our patients? Was this not, was this voyeurism? And it was very uncomfortable and very scary. And then what about from patients? You know, there, there's amazing examples yeah. in the film. Um, how, how was it to, how did you approach uh, patients and families to get consent? Uh, Dan and I, I, I was very, anxious about um, in any way making my patients feel that, that participation was any kind of requirement to get good care. And so, and Dan also was very deferential and very uncomfortable with being in the intensive care unit in general. So I would say we, this is how I would approach a patient or their family, usually a family member. Most people would never want to participate in something like this, but let me tell you what we're doing. And probably 80% of people said no. So this was a very unique and special group of people who agreed to allow us in. Absolutely. Uh, and film is such a powerful way to reach people on this topic. Uh, are you planning to do other film projects? Anything in the works? Well, I, I, really, I really do believe in the power of film. Um, we need to do some more talking. But yeah, we do. I really do believe that there is so much power. The response we got, which you know very well, to Extremis was profound. You know, the trailer uh, went viral within a week. Um, it's uh, the responses that we've had uh, in terms of people just all over the place, just absolutely wondering, well, I hope there's more. I hope this is the first in a series. I hope, and um, so I think we really, I almost feel an obligation to do more. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think our hospital is particularly receptive, having had two very successful movies made there. And um, I think, you know, I think that there's more to be said about this yeah. topic. You know, it's interesting. This was the very first short documentary that Netflix has ever uh, bought. They've, they've um, collaborated with a few since, but um, many of the comments that we've seen um, on, on the Netflix streaming website is, well, this is a, this is a great show. When, when's the next episode coming out? You know, um, which was surprising to me, but it makes great sense because they stream television um, mostly. Well, the funny so. thing about it was that, you know, Extremis also, there was an Iron Man character oh. apparently. <laughs> so a lot of yeah. people came to it thinking it was the Iron Man series. And there were, very, there were some very funny comments that said, hey, I thought this was the Iron Man, but hey, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> Um, so this is a largely uh, verite style film, um, but there's, there's one moment when there's a voiceover from you, and you say, I didn't want to do this anymore, and you have an epiphany of sorts, and I, I know you also write about this in your book, 
Um, can you tell us about this moment in time and maybe read a passage for us? I would love to. This, this moment really is an epiphany. This, I really do think this was my epiphany moment because I had been practicing um, in the intensive care unit in my residency for probably 10 years by the point that this moment that I'm going to read you happened. Um, and I had been suffering a lot of moral distress over that time, um, not even necessarily having words to explain it. There was no, this was the late 90s, you know, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. There was no palliative care movement. There was no narrative medicine movement. There was, there was nothing else. There was just this paradigm of treat these organs, you know, do this next step in physiology map. And I, I, so I was doing things, codes, that I knew weren't going to make a difference, but that was all I knew how to do. And so I felt this unrest, but it was really subconscious. I, I mean, I'm embarrassed now to say that it was subconscious, but it wasn't really, there wasn't, I, I didn't have words for it. And um, I happened to be lucky enough to, one of my first jobs was at New Jersey Medical School. It was called UMDNJ at the time in Newark, New Jersey in the early 2000s. And by chance, this group had gotten one of four grants from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They were one of four hospitals to receive this grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to enhance, to study the ability to enhance communication in intensive care units. And so all of a sudden, they started two months after I started at UMDMJ. And all of a sudden, in the ICU, there was this group called the family support team, which went on to become the palliative care team many years later, but it was run by Pat Murphy, who is a nurse, uh, advanced practice nurse, who had studied with Kubler-Ross and was really interested in this problem of why we were delivering such bad care at the end of life and the support trial and all of those things that we, many, I hope many of you know about. And she ran this team, and she was a different kind of nurse than I had ever worked with. She would come in and just, she would say, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Did you talk to this family? Do they understand what the prognosis is? Why is this patient in pain? And she would call the doctors out on stuff that I had never been called out on before. And at first, I sort of felt like it was like sand under my skin. And then I had this moment. Um, where I was putting, I was asked to put in a dialysis catheter into a patient who was dying. She had metastatic breast cancer, she was completely acidotic, her kidneys had failed, she was hypotensive, and they asked me to put in a catheter and the dialysis nurse was waiting outside with the machine, getting ready to connect her up right away. I said to the husband, we're going to put this in, it, uh, here are some of the complications and here's how we'll deal with them. He went off to the waiting room, thanks doc, thanks for helping me. And all of a sudden, I see Pat. She's standing in the doorway, and this is the moment. And now, Pat stood in the doorway, tapping her foot. On her face was a mixture of horror and resignation. I refocused my attention on the patient. She was moaning, but still, her face covered under the thick paper drapes. As I prepared to insert a large needle into her neck, Pat lifted an imaginary phone to her ear. 911, get me the police, she said, glaring at me. They're torturing a patient in the ICU at University Hospital. I paused, stunned, and suddenly I realized that she was absolutely right. I stood motionless, needle hovering. Over my years in training, I had had many moments of profound disillusionment, 
Moments when I had doubted that my efforts were helping my patients, worried, in fact, that I was actually hurting them. But I was able to brush them away by running off to my next urgent assignment. Yet, this encounter hit me like a punch in the gut. Instead of resentment, I felt shame. The patient under the hot drapes, was I really helping her? Of course not. I knew, as did everyone else involved in her care, that she had only days left of life, and every second under the hot drapes was another second separated from her anxious husband in the waiting room who wanted nothing more than to be by her side. But I couldn't see a way out of the situation. It had already gone too far. My drive, no, my compulsion to continue to treat her was so deeply ingrained that I could not yet imagine another role for myself. And what would I say to her husband, the nurses, and the medical student at my side, all waiting expectantly for me to complete the ritual we had all subscribed to? The sterile field had been painstakingly prepared, and now I stood trapped in it. I stared at the moaning lump of patient, supine beneath the blue drapes, and mentally ran through the various options. I could leave the sterile field in place, remove my gown and gloves, and go find the husband in the waiting room. What would I tell him? That my recommendation that we insert this catheter had been based solely on assessing the turbo pressure of her vascular system, not on the likelihood of actually making her better? Would I admit that she was actually dying and that all of the things we were doing were essentially distractions from this reality? Confess that in my zeal to do something, I had led him to a treatment that would do nothing more than hurt his wife in her final hours. And what about the nurse and the medical student waiting in the room for me to complete the procedure? How long should I tell them to wait? How long before the sterility of the field expired and we would need to redo the entire proceedings? On top of everything, the dialysis nurse was now outside the room with her machine, waiting to connect it to the catheter in the patient's neck. She had pushed this patient to the top of the schedule at our request. What would I tell her? All of these adjustments risked making me appear wimpy and discombobulated. I felt. I believed that an ICU doctor must never show second thoughts or self-doubt, never let them see you sweat. But now I felt my face covered by a thin layer of mist. I steeled myself. I'd put my patient on this path, and it felt beyond my abilities at this point to change direction. I had to move, and the only way I could see was forward. I took in a deep breath. I pulled the skin taut beneath the patient's jaw, and I inserted the needle. Pat walked out, shaking her head. Her words hung in the air like a judge and jury. That catheter didn't prolong the patient's life, but it changed mine. Thank you. So what was it like uh, to write a memoir? And what surprised you most about the process? You know, it's interesting. The, the thing that surprised me most was that I had been writing for a long time. Um, and I, I had been writing, I guess, a medic, medical writing since my early days of practice. And much of that writing was really done in order to process my moral distress. Um, it was sort of dark writing. There wasn't much hope in it. Um, and 
as I started to find the palliative care movement, I think my writing became more optimistic. It was nuanced, but there was a, there was a little more hope. And um, when I wrote up my book proposal, I mean, so much of what I write is about my own experience, my own feelings. It's, it's very personal. And I couldn't really think of any other way but to make it autobiographical. And yet I thought, well, who really cares about me? I mean, like, who am I? You know, it's kind of, and then my agent said, this is great, but I think you need to make it more prescriptive. It needs to be more of a how-to book. So I changed it a lot from memoir and autobiography to more of a prescriptive book. And when Penguin decided that they wanted to buy it, they said to me, we really love it, but we think it needs to be more memoir. <laughs> Which was music to my ears. And so I said, okay. So I turned it back into what I had originally thought it should be. Yeah. And in Extreme Measures, your book, you talk about the lack of humanism in our medical training and about your own personal isolation as a medical student. And, and I can personally attest to the same experience uh, during my training. Um, do you have hope this is changing? Yes. <laughs> I think change is complicated. It's particularly complicated in big institutions with lots of cultural baggage, like medicine. But I think, you know, change comes in stages, and I think it, it's slower than we would like it to be. But I see so many uh, vehicles for change that are emerging. I mean, first of all, look at you. I mean, I think narrative medicine is really the future. I, I think, it, I think you know, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's data on narrative medicine, which I don't know, but I've heard, and you can correct me, that there's something about narrative medicine that's almost more compelling and more change-making than actual data. I mean, data, we know, can take 10 years to, you know, real firm data from, you know, the studies that show ACE inhibitors. It's, it takes years for people to adopt it, but I think a good story can really change things faster. And I'm just watching the experience of people have watching movies and, and hopefully reading books uh, really can start to change the culture. But one thing I want to say that is important is that it's one thing to have pockets of, of change makers, whether it's grassroots lay community, it's narrative medicine groups, it's you know geriatrics and palliative care. That's all really important. But one of the things that's important to remember, and every medical student is probably going to nod their head, I'm assuming you will too, is that it's one thing to learn about this stuff in a classroom. It's one thing to learn about it from a curriculum. But then when you get dumped, I call it unceremoniously dumped, onto the wards, your third year of medicine, and you're walking around with your little short white coat, and you feel like you've got nothing to offer, and you feel you know, completely at the mercy of this experience, you are still at risk for following the behavior that's modeled for you. And what's happening still on our hospital wards is not what is starting to happen in our classroom. So I think we've got a lot of way to go in terms of translating what we're learning in sort of classroom environments, supportive narrative medicine environments, and putting it actually onto the wards. I think that's going to take a lot of time and, and more, just more of, a, of an effort, the, a, a creative effort. And, and there's a lot of new things that we're going to have to start trying to do. 
Can you talk about the ways that, that you feel like the institutional culture of medicine suppresses the personal narrative? Did anyone see that uh, JAMA um, of the last year sometime, that whole JAMA article on medical students and the experiences of medical students? It was, about a, it was really incredible. It, it was all on medical education. And there were some incredible articles there. There was some incredible data. They had, apparently, in one Ohio medical school, they have this whole cartoon drawing class um, where the medical students go and, or residents also draw cartoons about their experiences. And the data that emerged from that program was so alarming. These medical students were traumatized. Mm -hmm. They were drawing cartoons of getting their heads bitten off and their attendings on the wards being these monsters who were chasing them, really disturbing images. And you know, we are, we've heard data about medical students and, and depression, um, much higher rates of depression in medical students than in other uh, groups. And practicing physicians. And practicing too. physicians, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we really have a serious problem embedded into our culture and the way we train people, and, and we've all experienced it. Uh, maybe some of us who are older, more so and more harshly than some of us who are younger, but I mean, the whole concept of pimping and, you know, just this, this sort of culture of right and wrong, and you know, it's, it's, it's embedded. And one of the pieces I write in the book, which I was actually gonna try to find so I could read it, is about a medical resident that I had who uh, was really, so excited, she was going into anesthesia, she really wanted to be an ICU doctor, and she was one of my interns. And I remember this, it's in the book, but I, so I, can't, I can't find it fast enough, but she had, they, we, we have a very busy ICU, and she had probably five patients on her service. It was a lot. And by total chance, she had a patient die every day for three days. And I, we were sitting in rounds, and I could see her looking kind of, on the third day when she was telling, rounding on this last patient who was really deteriorating. She looked unsteady, and I pulled her aside afterwards, and I said, you know, are you okay? And all of us, and she was this very chipper kind of, I see you, anesthesia, you know, I'm gonna do, I love these procedures. And all of a sudden, she, she sucked in this deep breath like that, and she started to sob. And she was going like this, like just fanning her face, kind of like, oh, I gotta stop doing it. And she was mortified, mortified that she was crying in front of me. And I pulled her off to the side, and we went and sat down, and I said, you know, she said, I'm so sorry, I don't know, I don't know what, you know, what happened, I don't know what's getting into me. And I just said to her, it's okay. This is like a normal response. You know, what you're having right now is a normal response to what's happening here. And she, she really was just mortified. She, she just calmed herself down. And then a couple of days later, I checked in on her. And she said, you know what? I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I want to be an ICU doctor. I can't, I can't deal with this. And I just couldn't help but wonder if her diff her incredible mortification at crying in front of me, even though I was very receptive to it, most people wouldn't know what, I mean, I'm okay with crying, and I, I, I was praising her for crying 
but I don't think that is a typical response of an ICU attending. And I think she just she couldn't connect those two things and she just couldn't process her emotions and she didn't feel like she would be able to manage this. And she literally decided not to do an anesthesia um, residency after that, which I found very heartbreaking. And I guess I can't help but wonder if we had more processing of emotion embedded into our experience and, and made it normal for people to have these emotions. It's okay, I want you to sob when you have three patients cry, you know, die. Um, if that would give more people permission to kind of do this work. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that at our hospital in San Francisco that we're piloting um, as part of our comprehensive palliative care education program for the residents is um, uh, a series of noon conferences and, and events where, the, where residents can, and medical students can come and kind of debrief difficult situations they've encountered. And we have faculty along with um, our social workers, chaplains, physicians, and nurses all kind of um, talk through some of these difficult cases. And you know, it's been really surprising to me to see the turnout of 100 people show up to these rounds. and. And attendings that you know you see as these rocks are are sobbing, talking about their experience as medical students. Um, it's it's really quite powerful, and it's something that I think will only you know help us be better clinicians um, if it was something that was you know more widely embraced. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Is that Schwartz rounds or is it it's, your Shoshana it's rounds? It's our, it's our <laughs> rounds. We're, we're about to start doing Schwartz rounds, but uh, yeah, it's part of our palliative care program. That's so, wonderful. Um, so our medical education system is really highly focused on procedures. Um, that's what we're paid to do often, right? Um, the see one, do one, teach one model. Um, for training uh, in medical procedures and other things. So why don't we have that same thing for conversations about end of life with our patients or, or breaking bad news? Um, well, now we do, um, but it's not as widely distributed as, as, as I would like it. Has anyone heard of Vital Talk? One person, two people, okay, three people, yay. Vital Talk is a program that I highly endorse and it's a see one, do one, teach one kind of thing. Um, it's, they, I don't think they would say that they have that attitude, but it's basically drilling. It's, you know, drilling in a round robin. There's a hot seat, and you basically go around the room, and everyone has to sit in the hot seat. They have trained actors, and they basically practice these communication skills that, that are part of the Vital Talk curriculum. I found it incredibly helpful, um, and I, I know that they're really doing some amazing work, and they're getting into many of the medical schools. Um, and they're doing a lot of stuff at you know conferences like AAHPM and things like that where they teach. But Vital Talk is is it, we cannot expect to have communication skills unless we practice them, just like we practice putting in our catheters and all those other things. So we really need to be doing that more. Yeah. And and last question for you: um, What advice would you give to your second year medical student self, <laughs> knowing what you know now? First, I would want the, the environment to be different than it was, and it's starting to be different. I would want to feel there were more places I could go for support, which I didn't have, really. I just didn't have. So that's not what I would have done differently, and that's what, what I would want available for me, that there would be more places to process emotions and do reflection and narrative medicine programs and counseling and, and peer support and all that kind of stuff. 
what would I tell myself? I think one of the most important things is you have to rely on others. You can't do this alone, even though they try to tell you you should. Um, and I can tell you as an ICU attending, I need support to do the stuff that's hardest, and I need it to this day after many, many, you know, as two, after two decades of being an ICU doctor, when it's time to change or to think about changing the course, the goals of care, communicating with the patient and family about whether or not it's time to stop this full core press and say, maybe we should sort of change this. I need support from the nurses and from the medical students and from my colleagues. This model of hierarchy where you're supposed to be able to do it all yourself and not ask for support and not ask for emotion and not confess your insecurities, that doesn't work. It's not working. It's not working for anybody. It's certainly not working for the patient. So I would say collaborate, ask for support, don't feel the shame of asking for support, feel proud of yourself for asking for support. That would be one big thing. Um, another thing is be courageous. Um, and again, courage in this, I'm not talking about going and being a lone hero doctor, or being alone in the trenches, not having to ask for I'm saying be courageous by asking for support, by opening yourself up to feeling the insecurities and the questions and wondering. And be, that's, that's a certain kind of courage that I think we, we all need more of, and, and it's hard. It's really hard, but do it. Um, I think those would be two big ones. I think we will open, uh, open it up to questions from the audience here. Well, thank you for that uh, great conversation. Let's open up questions. I have no background in this. In the early 70s, I wrote a paper entitled Female Chauvinism in Nursing. A say that again? A female a Chauvinism in Nursing. And because I noticed that the nurses in the intensive care unit mimic the doctors and lost their nurturing their relational autonomy. And Pat Murphy didn't forget that she was a nurse. And I think she was revolutionary in that sense. And I was wondering if you would want I mean you as yeah. a woman in a different voice. That's we so give up our relational autonomy because medicine is a war. So I and I told Gawadi said the biggest problem of the immortal is to corral cowboys and make them into pit stop mechanics. So I wow. just wanted to make that comment. That's, I mean, I think you're right. I think, you know, chauvinism is not uniquely owned by men. And I think, uh, you know, this, I have met just as many men who are collaborative and patient-centered as women. So I have several male colleagues. So I, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a gender thing. I think this is a personality thing. Yeah, I think there, there's, a, there's a, a section in my book that talks about, it's called Tattooed Tears. And there are some, I work in this inner city level one trauma center in the middle of Oakland, very tough place. There is a cowboy, and, and by the way, this existed at UMDNJ too, in New Jersey, in Newark. 
there is, in some places, there's more of this cowboy attitude than in others, and there's a lot of it in this hospital that I work at. And several of the nurses, I tell a story about a couple of male nurses who are really tough and really would joke about me, like, okay, Dr. Zetter, we don't need you in here, kind of as if there's something about talking to patients about their preferences that's somehow almost hastening death. And, and you know, this, he said to me at one point, I was walking into a room with my medical student to go and have a family conference about a patient who had been on a ventilator for a long time. Everyone knew this patient was dying, including the nurse. And I, he was the nurse from a different room. And as I was walking by his room to go into this room to talk to his family, he said, and my medical student was with me, Dr. Zitter, are you teaching that medical student to kill too? And he was the same nurse who had said to me, you know, you know how those gangsters get those tears for every kill that they make? You can have a whole face full of tears. And that, I, I trying to be tough, schoolyard tough, I would generally ignore him, but when he said, are you teaching this medical student who was standing right there with me to kill, I looked at him, I said, how dare you? Don't you ever talk to me like that again. And he came up to me later, and I really don't think it was about being afraid of losing his job. I think he really didn't realize that that behavior was bullying and unacceptable. He thought it was part of the riff of just being in the ICU. That's kind of how we talk to each other. And it, so it's, it's really, it's a cultural thing that's really important to nip in the bud, and it's a real problem. We have a question here. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Berger. Um, I'm a graduate of the narrative medicine program here, and I'm a chaplain who trains in an ICU, and I'm like, glad to see you. <laughs> um, I'm a researcher, um, I've actually, on the basis of my experience in the ICU, decided to direct my uh, ministry to provider well-being, and something that I have encountered quite a bit, I, I see, obviously, narrative medicine as a phenomenal vehicle that sort of transcends religion for self-care, okay? But something I encounter quite a bit, and I wonder if your experience is the same on the other coast, um, is that people are really unaware that professional chaplains don't proselytize, first of all, and that they are there as much for the staff as they are for uh, patients and families. And breaking that barrier is extremely difficult. I wonder if you have any more success or more acceptance of that on the other side of the continent. Probably not. I don't know, what about you at CPMC? Not, not for me, I can tell you. I, I, I currently work at the institution where I trained and I would see chaplains around but I had really no idea, sort of, you know, I would see them talking with patients and, and you know, that very often brought, you know, patients and families comfort but I, I really had no clue that they were available and accessible to us and how really actually fantastic that would be if, if our medical students and residents had a sense of that. Um, I just, it was something that was, you know, never, um, never provided to me as a, as a possibility. Yeah. No, we do, and we, our palliative care team is seen as sort of provider support, but not specifically the chaplain, and I think you're absolutely right that that would, is an incredible role for the chaplain to play. I know. Preaching, preaching to the choir. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so you had one patient in the documentary mentioned cost and how the mom didn't want to call the ambulance because of how much it would cost 
Is that ever an aspect of your conversations? Like, listen, I can put you on this machine, but it's going to cost this amount over X amount of time, or we can make this other decision that might be harder, but it will cost less if the family's not insured or something like that. Never, 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 never. And that's partly because most of my patients don't have insurance or they have Medicaid and it's not, it's not something, but I'm not saying it's not something that we should talk about, but I don't because first of all, I treat a community that has been very disenfranchised and I don't want anybody to think that I'm thinking about money and I'm not. But you know, it's obviously an issue. We know that good patient-centered care saves money. So ultimately, I'd rather just focus on the patient-centered care. And, I, and I've never discussed m money with, with patients. Interestingly, um, when, when asked, most providers have no idea how much things actually cost. And when they do, um, things like daily labs and the things that we sort of reflexively do every day, when we, when we train our, our providers to know how much they're actually spending every day, and maybe not for good reason, they, they cut down um, because they're just thinking about it. So um, yeah, good question. Other questions? Thank you very much for coming to visit. Uh, I'd like to talk more about the movie with, with people in the room. Um, and I, I, I know you didn't have a hand in actually making the film, or producing it, or editing it, or writing it, or writing the treatment. Um, but um, I'm just wondering if people who watch it who don't understand very much about what goes on in rooms like this, um, might not recognize the profound doubt. Well, I didn't see very much doubt in the film. You all seem to know kind of what you wanted to happen. And I know that that's not the case. Mm. And I know that somewhere in that unit, you and others sat down and wept together and, 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 and struggled to see what's really the fairest and kindest thing for this gentleman with, with Donna. So I'm wondering if you want to say something about, about the doubt. And you say at one point in, in the film, we doctors have to show that we know everything and we're confident, and, and, and it's your confidence that kind of comes across. Yeah. And I, I, I just want to invite you to talk about the other side of that. Yeah. That is, that is a good example of the fact that this is a movie. Because uncertainty, it, it's all throughout my book. It's all, it's all about uncertainty. And you know, I, you're right, I didn't have anything to do with making this book. And, and the, the truth, the, the movie, the book I did, but the, the movie, the, the movie really is a movie. I mean, you could have the most neutral documentary. It's still someone's perspective and trying to make a story and trying to make a compelling. I'm filled with uncertainty. I'm filled with uncertainty. Um, and, and that's and sometimes when people say, well, how do we make this better? It's hard to really come up with a path to making this better when uncertainty is such a big part of all of this. And um, 
I don't know if you read in the New England Journal, David Kasserit wrote one of the most beautiful pieces on uncertainty. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a perspective. Um, and he talks about how incredibly important it is that we start to learn how to, he called it something about tolerating uncertainty. And there is no way to not have uncertainty in every single one of these cases. You can only be 100% certain about someone's prognosis and outcome once they've died, in my opinion. And so I, and yet, if you come to your patients and say, I just, I, I don't know, you know, there's a chance, there's a one in 100,000, they're gonna get confused, right? So your patients, I mean, especially in the environment of the ICU, where you have to make some decisions at some point, you have to be able to take the uncertainty that's real, and you also have to pull in your experience and your gut feeling about where things are gonna go and give some guidance, but do it with this welcoming in of the uncertainty, but not too much so that the patient and family lose confidence in you in terms of your, I mean, it's a very complicated dance, I find, and I'm curious to hear if anyone else has a strong feeling about it, but it's a really tough thing and it's different with every patient and every family and sort of figuring out what the formula is for acknowledging the uncertainty that's just a part of every single case, and yet helping people make some choices, because at a certain point, you have to make choices. You know, say there's a one in 10,000 chance, like Donna, for example. Donna had neuromusc uh, uh, myotonic dystrophy. She had watched her, it's a genetic disorder, progressive neuro neurologic uh, dysfunction. She had been getting weaker and weaker and weaker for months, years actually. She was now, she actually for a year and a half or so, she'd been living with her brother for that reason. She couldn't walk, she was in a wheelchair. And the last sort of couple of weeks before she got admitted with respiratory failure, she'd been sort of becoming more and more short of breath and had been sort of eating her food. She couldn't even really lift her head up while she eat her, ate her food. And she, you know, when you know the history of this, she was seven years past the average lifespan of this condition already thanks to the excellent care of her brother. She was already having every single symptom that's associated with terminal myotonic dystrophy, with vomiting, regurgitation, aspiration, all that stuff that's part of this disease. She was not going to get better. Um, and yet, as my colleague said, both of us being pulmonologists, by the way, but we haven't had an expert weigh in on her condition. We're two pulmonologists. We've both dealt with patients with neuro, you know, neuromuscular, uh, progressive neuromuscular dysfunction. And if we're not expert enough to weigh in with this family at this point, without having to go to Stanford and get this, you know, someone who's done genetic research in mind, there's a certain point where you have to help people make a decision. So I'm, I, it's a long answer, but uncertainty is a reality in every single case, in the intensive care unit and beyond because we're not soothsayers and we don't have a crystal ball, but we also need to be able to help people make decisions. And it's a really complicated dance. We're filled with some moral distress to, to this day for me. If any, I mean, if anyone else wants to comment or if you want to comment, I, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, anyone else have thoughts about this? 
I'm sorry, this is not related. No. I, I'm a medical student here and at fourth year. I just wanted to thank you so much for your comments. I'm also a writer. And when I was listening to the excerpt that you chose to read, I felt this really palpable sense of suspense because you were talking about like laying the cover over the face of the patient and like the expiring sterility. And I feel like myself, I've been in these moments where uh, the inertia is like headed in a certain direction when you realize that maybe you're making a mistake. And um, I, I really feel that the culture prohibits you from stopping at that moment. And with your story, I was literally on the edge of my seat hoping that you didn't place that catheter. And then when you did, I was like, damn it. Um, because, because I, I, because I want a, a role model for no matter where we are to be able to, to pause and, and ask if, if if this is right and if we consider the best interests of the patients and if we're seeing the whole picture. When the drape is already down, like if you, if you it's just a piece of paper, we waste paper all the time. I mean, so can you speak to that? Like, mm. do you think it's possible to stop in that moment? I think it really depends on the culture of the institution, on the culture of your medical team at that moment in time, the constellation of people who are in that particular medical team. You know, the addition or departure of one person can change the entire, the entire culture of a team. If you have a team where there's a sense that it's okay to be reflective, to think, to reconsider, then miracles can happen and things can change. If you have a team, again, it's all serendipitous. It depends who's on that team. If you have just one person, even if it's a medical student, I can be the attending on a team and have a medical student or or, or, or a nurse or somebody who's kind of got this attitude of like eye rolling or whatever, and it can impact my ability to stop and reassess and reflect and feel okay about, wait a minute guys, let's put the pause on here. So I think it's a cultural thing. I think you can try to enhance the culture of teams, but I can tell you as an attending for 20 years, there are some teams you cannot turn around. I write a, story in my book about a, a, a very difficult case where this patient was came in, had a massive cardiac arrest on the um, cath table. And by the time I got her, she was, had been coded for an hour and a half by the um, cardiac cath team. And then we came in and coded her for another hour and a half. And she was in VFib the whole time. And she was a young woman. She had been, she was 56 or something. And she had been in completely good health before that. And you can imagine, we're full core press here. We're going for it. We are trying to get this woman back. But she's getting progressively acidotic. Her renal function is deteriorating. Her heart is just in VFib constantly. And think we just can't kind of get control of, of it. And um, the long and short of it is that it went over three days. She would go sort of have these, you know, we'd be coding her for a couple of hours and she'd kind of come back and she'd get a blood pressure again. And, but, and my resident, who it was an intern, she was a month into her, into the, the rotation, or a month into being a doctor. And this was just a few years ago. She and I, I, at one point when we were coding this patient for, it had gone on for a couple of hours, this was maybe the second day, I said, it's time for us to go talk to this family about making her DNR next time she goes into BFib. And this resident was mortified and became furious. And she walked away and slammed the door. And, she, and I went and talked to the family. The family said, 
make her DNR. I had, we didn't even put her on fentanyl or, or any pain meds because we didn't want to lower her blood pressure because she had such a minimal blood pressure. It was, it was a terrible, terrible situation. And so when I came back, this woman was just furious and I pulled her aside and I said, listen, what's going on? And she said, Dr. Zitter, you and I just have different philosophies of care. And I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and this woman was two or three weeks into her, into her, and I felt shame. Okay, so it impacted me. The patient ended up, we made her DNR, the next morning I came in and she was still alive. And I thought, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. And this woman was looking at me with, with a lot of disdain. And I ripped up the DNR. I ripped it up. And because I felt this shame, like I was this naysayer. Here's this woman, she could be resuscitated. And then she started going into BFib again. And we went in and did a few, uh, probably an hour and a half of coding. And I went and made her DNR again. And again, the same thing with this resident. And the next morning I came back and she was still alive. I called all night. She, I, I, I have to admit to you, I wanted her to die. I knew she was gonna die, but I felt this incredible shame that my team was watching me as this woman, who I said was gonna die, and had written two DNRs now, still was alive. So I can just tell you that it's very hard when the culture, even one person can make it hard to feel reflective, to feel like it's okay to think about stopping. I mean, I would say keep keep asking questions. I, I found myself early on during my training, doing many months of, of ICU and seeing the same, much of what we're talking about, the same, you know, frail elderly patient with five chronic medical problems and then, you know, stage four uh, cancer. So nothing that we were going to be doing in the ICU for this person was going to reverse what was going on. We were just really prolonging their suffering is what I felt. And I just, you know, found myself um, as the months went on in, in, more, in more and more moral distress about it. Um, and I think uh, at, at one point I, I found the courage to say, what are we doing here? I mean, we had a particular patient um, where I just said, listen, what's the big picture? Um, and I think it's okay, especially in the ICU where you are very granularly focused on today's sodium and, you know, the blood pressure from moment to moment. Just, just take a big step back, even for yourself, and say, you know, what are we doing here? Um, I think it can be really helpful to, to sort of frame, um, you know, the, the conversation and, and, you know, even on rounds. I mean, maybe it's a West Coast thing that we kind of bring things up and, and talk with our attendings in a, in a more kind of familiar way. But I, I just think um, if something doesn't feel right, if it's not sitting well with you, just ask some, ask some questions. And if nothing else, you'll sort of get more kind of understanding and clarification about the situation for yourself. The question back here. Hi, thank you very much. Um, just as a kind of quick aside, so I'm a psychiatrist who works on the inpatient unit here, but had a background in cultural anthropology, but did two years in general surgery. So uh, the sort of like situated kind of reality that you're, you're describing, I think, is fascinating. And yet, to the question that was asked up front about money. I, I want to thank that individual for that question because I think it's not something that we talk about as robustly as we should, partly because of histories of uh, certain groups certainly being marginalized or not having issues, and yet there is a certain limited amount of resources that are available to everyone.
everyone and for everyone. So every bed that's occupied means that somebody else can fill that space. Every situation where somebody else goes on a ventilator means the cost of healthcare goes up for everyone. Even ICU care itself tends to create a very defined kind of reality for a hospital system where they might preference that care over expanding primary care resources. So for, for you as an ICU doctor, as well as sort of within this larger situated reality, what do you think would cause you to have that conversation about money? Because I, I wonder if that's part of the barrier that also needs to be broken. And then a second question mm -hmm. would be, there's this notion of cowboys in medicine, people who want to push the envelope in one direction. Do you see yourself as a cowboy in the other direction? Mm. And Good question. <laughs> that's a great question, so yeah. Those, those are my Good questions both. Uh, I'm gonna give you a quick, a quick answer about the money. I, uh, we've got a big problem in the way we think about money and healthcare, but I don't, I, I know that there's no, given that we have fee-for-service, third-party payers, et cetera, et cetera, to ask people to do decision-making based on um, some sort of sense of distributive justice and um, looking out for the other, the other guy. And I don't think that's necessary. I mean, I hate, I, it sounds so cynical, but I don't think it works. I don't and know. It's also very complicated. It's yeah. not so straightforward. Yeah. Um, so. It's and it, it sparks distrust. I mean, in my, in my experience, it sparks enough distrust that it, it, it can undo. And I'm not saying it's not a good thing. Maybe it, it can undo progress towards getting patient-centered goals of care, which also saves money. So I just, I have never found it helpful personally. I mean, I completely yeah. agree that the ICU is not the ideal place for it. Yeah. But, but then where would we introduce that conversation more effectively? And I don't know if that's, you know, naturally, politically, that seems to be a back panel or nothing. <laughs> but, but where, I mean, I know, I know primary care offices tend to be a place where before people are ill, you have those discussions ahead of time to try and track people. Right. And whether that, that has to be something that's more of the education process. But again, what are you, you know, those people aren't necessarily going to be paying for this expensive care, even in the primary care office upstream. You know, for some people, there's a, you know, there's a conflict. Either you get hospice or you get, you know, nursing, you know, nursing facility, but you can't get both. I mean, you know, Medicare doesn't pay for both. It, there's a lot of conflicts that could impact these people, so you might want to say, hey, you know, if you want to continue doing disease-focused treatment, uh, you might want to, um, you're going to have to pay for, you know, there, there are certain things you can, you can impact people on, but for the most part, I don't think that most people's insurance is going to necessarily penalize them if they continue to get treated for full, you know, full court press fee for service. They're just going to, most of them are going to get paid. Now, as things change with our healthcare system, I don't know how that's going to be impacted. But the second question that you asked, which is, that's a really important question. I think that it's really easy to become a zealot about anything that you represent. Like you, you see the world through the eyes. If you're, as they say, if you're a carpenter, everything looks like a nail. If you're a palliative care doctor, maybe everything looks like comfort care. And if you're an ICU doctor, maybe everything looks like a ventilator. I think it's really, I've learned a couple of lessons. Um, 
that, you know, in, and again, I can't go into them all here, but I've learned a couple of lessons about how palliative care sometimes doesn't necessarily look at the big picture. And, you know, sometimes it's really about what the patient needs. It's not necessarily about where they are. Do they happen to be in the ICU? If they're in the ICU, they should get a ventilator. No. What does this patient need for their care based on their goals of care, based on their overarching goals of care, their prognosis, and their choices? Um, and it doesn't matter if they're in the palliative care suite, they may need a procedure. It doesn't matter if they're in the ICU, they may not want to take on, you know, get intubated or take that chemotherapy. And I think we are all at risk of, of seeing things too much from the perspective of our training and we have to get out and remember that it's about the patient. Absolutely, I would totally agree and just say that a lot of these um, constructs are a bit artificial too. It's, it should be about what's yeah. best for that patient, no matter if it's them receiving palliative care in the ICU or you know yeah. BiPAP on the floor. It's, it's really what should be um, what's, what's best for patients. Yeah. And even this issue is tied somewhat to money because if, yeah. if your specialty is being reimbursed for a certain uh, instrumentation or a certain uh, practice, then that's probably going to drive your practice. That's right. And that's why, you know, that's why this whole move towards, uh, you know, outcomes-based payment, I think, is, is critical for good patient care. We can't be doing a fee-for-service model and expect to uh, treat our patients with what they need, in my opinion. I'm not sure if we can, um, speaking so honestly about doubt and uncertainty, I was wondering how do you move from the world of the ICU to the world of home, family, friends. I know that. Do you separate yourself, or do you see them as just two very different worlds, or how does? Well, you know, I actually find that I have a little bit of trouble separating them, and it's particularly so as I've been writing this book. Um, because it's just, it's just consuming, and, and you know, there's just so much, I find that I don't have enough boundaries around it, and I think in some ways you really need to have those. So it's, it's, it's tough. Sometimes I come home at the end of, of the day, and I'm so tired that I just really can't get out of my bed, and I talk about my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter at the time, pulling my boots off and just trying to help me kind of get back into the world of, of, of the living or of, of, of my home. Um, but it, sometimes I've burst into tears at the dinner table. I mean, it's, 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 it's something I take home with me. What, what about you? I don't know if I take it home with me. I, you know, I find that um, for me, uh, striking a balance between sort of the, the work stuff that I do and, and my outside non-clinical stuff. I'm, I'm lucky in that I work part-time, and so my um, roles are really split. Um, so when I'm, when I'm off, I'm, I'm truly off from the hospital. Um, I would say that, you know, for me, one thing that really keeps me grounded and centered is, um, well, it's two things. I would say exercise. So I'm, I'm somewhat of a, a obsessive um, <laughs> fitness person, and just for me, that that keeps me kind of uh, grounded. It's time every single day that I can kind of reflect on what's gone on at the hospital or what's gone on at home, um, and uh, gives me time to process. And then also my husband, um, who happens to be here, we we talk a lot at home. I, I often do actually bring my work home um, uh, in talking about. Um, death and dying. Um, I it's it's it happens to be you know a passion of mine. Um, so it's um, yeah. I'm probably not so good at, at at keeping the separation there, but we have interesting conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Question 
Are you okay with a couple more questions? Yeah. Sure. Thank you both for being here and for your work. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I have a question, but first I just want to say that my mom in 1987 was one of the first people in a hospice. Uh, was part of the VA out of Albany. And, you know, the, there was one moment where I was alone with her and she, the nurse couldn't give her any more, more of me, you know, and she was moaning in pain. And um, I said, isn't there anything I can do? And the nurse, she changed my life when she looked at me and she said, she said, yeah, let me, let me get a bowl of cold water and would you like to turn a cloth on her head, you know? And I said, yeah, you know? And I just thought, how, I mean, like, it's, it, that changed my life. Mm -hmm. That changed my whole life. And I realized that just as my mom helped birth me into this life, I was helping to birth her into the next, you know? So I'm all about, I mean, I'm just so grateful that that was my experience as a young woman and that you're uh, taking, you know, taking initiative in bringing this into the world. Um, um, I'm a student in narrative medicine and I am a Reiki master and have been studying therapeutic touch. I would love to have it be really in the hospitals more, but not just for patients, but for our medical students and our professionals so that they can learn to, you know, uh, work I mean, I give myself Reiki all the time, and that was one of the reasons why I started, because of some sleep uh, issues and like that. But do, you, do either of your institutions have anything like that going on? We have a Center for Health and Healing that's sort of an ancillary program to the hospital where there are what we would consider complementary um, therapies available for patients, but it's not, unfortunately, something that's sort of widely known about or used all that often. Um, sometimes they'll have uh, our massage therapists come in uh, when, when patients request it, but it's sort of that consultative model where they have to really ask for it and push for them to, to come in. So unfortunately, it's not as robust as we'd like for it to be. And not with the uh, medical students at all, I would imagine. No, it would be wonderful, but would be, right? uh, I wish, wish I could say we had that. Thank you. I had a question for you. Um, so the experience of watching the film is uh, very emotional. Uh, it's, really, it's very moving for, for people who are experiencing the stories that you are engaged in. I wanted to ask you about the emotions of the caregiver um, and, and the physician in particular, um, or the other members of the healthcare team, and how that influences your decision making with, with the patient. Did, did your emotional response mm. affect the way that you're thinking about the case? And, Yes, um, I'm, we're human, and, you know, I think, I, I, I wrote one of the pieces, I, you're asking me all the questions that I think about. Uh, there's a little piece I wrote in here called Too Young to Die, and it's the idea being that when you feel like someone's, well, they're just too young, and oh, she's got two kids, and mm -hmm. oh, gee, you know what, this is a Holocaust survivor, and this person looks like my grandmother. Even if you're not saying those things, they impact the way you think about this patient and how much you're gonna push. That sounds terrible, right? That sounds like you're, you're, you're not caring as much about some patients, you're caring more about others. I think it's just a part of who we are as human beings. I think we have to, you, people that you relate to in some way, you sort of, you see yourself in them and you just sort of, 
that existential push to stay alive made, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I feel like I've seen people's, I, my palliative, in this Too Young to Die piece, my palliative care colleague said, she's so young. Like I, I was saying, I think it's time for us to call a hospice. Yeah, but she's really young. What does that have to do with that? What, what does that have to do with the decision about whether or not someone should or shouldn't have hospice? But I hear, I don't know, does anyone have any thoughts about that, Shoshana? Do, I, you... I was going to say the exact same thing. I've mm -hmm. had the same experience over and over that when I can actually relate uh, to a patient, meaning that it's, you know, I see myself in them, either by age or some other thing, I, I have a very different sort of response. And I actually think, I mean, that's part of being a human being, but also um, there's something unnatural about young people uh, dying, right? And so that evokes something, and I, I would hope that I don't, uh, treat them differently, but um, I, maybe I maybe I do. Um. Yeah, I, I, there's a, a, a I had a case. It was my third case when I first started doing palliative care later in my career, and I was trying out at this new hospital. It was my third case. It was maybe the the first week that I was on, and this woman uh, I was called to her bedside, and they had said she wants to go to the comfort suite. She's ready. She's and when I saw her. She had no surrogates, and I realized that she was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, and she had, by the way, an aspiration pneumonia because she had bowel intestinal obstruction because she had been a victim of Dr. Mengele, who had operated on her and done twin studies on her. So there was this whole story behind her. And I couldn't let go. I was there as the palliative care doctor to take her to the palliative care suite and put her on a morphine drip, and I couldn't do it. And I sort of, they had, she had said she didn't want to be intubated, so I kind of jerry-rigged this BiPAP, but we couldn't get her in the ICU because the ICU said we can't take her if she's DNR, and it was a disaster, and I made her life worse. I made the end of her life worse. Um, so I think we can really get people in trouble when we have biases towards pushing harder. But, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's human. What I like about this conversation is that it acknowledges our human nature, that we are emotional beings, uh, but it also asks, it, it's a call to a recognition of ourselves, an awareness of ourselves so that we have a choice in how we're responding to our emotional states. Not to deny it, uh, but to check it. And yes. Connect that with our values and our mission. Reflect on it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, a couple more questions? Sure. Are you okay with Yeah. Hi. You mentioned that you work in an ICU where the majority of the patients are on Medicaid or don't have insurance. And I'm wondering, um, working in a setting where the, I guess the power dynamic between the medical professionals and the patients that you see is more exacerbated, mm -hmm. how do you work to really protect these people who may have often been disenfranchised or victimized in this medical setting? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's such an important question. And it's, you know, you just try to be as compassionate as you can and try, and it's hard, you know, there's, it's so painful to see, uh, to feel like somebody might feel like you're, your power is somehow impacting their experience. It is very, I'm very sensitive to it, and I can't, I can only do so much. A lot of times I will bring in my uh, palliative, my colleague who's a palliative care social worker who's an African-American woman who's from the community, and I will, if I sense that someone's feeling 
oppressed or distrusting, uh, untrusting, I will bring her in with me just to try to help them feel more supported. But it's, it's very hard. It's very hard. I don't have an easy answer for it, honestly. One last question? Very, very back there. So uh, first off, thank you for this amazing film. Uh, I'm a professor in Deaf and Dying. I teach undergraduate students uh, in Deaf and Dying. And I have, have 62 students a semester now, so it's gotten bigger and bigger that really have to face these facts and what's happening, and it's wonderful. Um, on a side note, I actually worked here at Choney for seven years as a childhood specialist. Uh, I was trained as a medical social worker. and. Uh, as a child specialist, and I now work in the homes. I used to do home visits for children that have cancer and their siblings, and I used to go into the homes and do work with them. And I have kids from all over the city and just New Jersey and Connecticut, and I see that no matter what hospital they're treated, uh, often I'm the person that the parents say, you know, I don't think that this is going so well. You know, I want to ask about hospice, but no one's brought it up, or nobody's talked to me about the next step. And it's very out of my scope to answer those things. So I'm wondering, uh, as a child specialist, uh, how to bridge those questions for parents or facilitation with the doctors. Uh, I get a little pushback usually when I'm talking to the medical staff when I call about those decisions. But I find, especially working with children, um, often they just want to be home. They want to meet their siblings. They want to have their comfort. And often it's taken away from them because those discussions are not had. So just wondering how to yeah. push those to continue to happen sooner. And thank you again. Oh, that's, that's such an important question because that's where that courage, when, I, when Shoshana said, what are the two things? I, I, I think you have to be courageous because there's no question. I know exactly what you're experiencing when you feel like people are who are you to come and talk to? You have to do it anyways. You have to do it anyways. And, um, it, it, you know, I, as a palliative care doctor, I have to do that with the, with the surgical teams. Or the, and they are like, who are you to come in and question my management of this? You have to do it. You have to try and do it in a way that's most collaborative, as you, you know. But, and maybe you can find a champion that... You know, maybe right now, because it's an imperfect system, you have to find a physician champion person who can work with you and maybe be the liaison, maybe it's the palliative care team, but you just have to do it because if you're just sitting and waiting for the doctors to do it, it may not happen and then we're robbing this family of options. Thank you. I wanted to let you know that uh, Jessica's book is in the back and is available for purchase and she will sign them for you. Um, I just want to thank you both for your work, for your creativity, uh, for the authenticity of your approach with your patients, and wanting to bring their stories to us and uh, keeping them alive for us. And uh, really, just to, I, I really think that it was a, a, a conspiracy of a higher power <laughs> that made this possible. And if y'all knew the story involved and how this happened, you would understand. But it's really special that they're both here with us and thank you. Kevin and Quidwin. You were, you were with.
Oh. I started a hospice and some people saw me